Welcome to everybody who's here in the flesh and welcome to everybody who's watching online. This is our Sunday morning Bible class on 1 Samuel. Got a timeline here. Usually we have review questions that go back and look at what we've covered so far. Uh, Instead this morning we're just going to look at a timeline, kind of catch up with uh, where we are. Samuel anoints Saul as king. Oh, bud. Oh, all right. I, I can hear the speaker here is working. speaker apparently in the back is not working. Can't, can't hear. Okay. <laughs> Testing one, two, three, uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then the speaker came on and God said, let there be sound. And there was sound in part of the auditorium. Still got it in the back or still don't have it in the back. No sound in the back. Just, just everybody have to move up front, I guess. So we've got speaker down here. Oh, this one's not working either? Now this one's not working. I know, I know. They're working on it back there. I, I didn't mess with it, I promise. Testing now? Oh, there we go. I'm not going to ask what it was. I don't care. It's just working. That's all we care about. Amen. (laughs) Amen from the back. Let's see. Where was I? Uh, Welcome to everybody who's here in the flesh. Welcome to everybody who's here online. I don't know if you could hear me online or not. Probably not. Some of you folks are a long ways out. You have to carry a long way. No review questions today, just looking at a timeline of what's brought us up to this point in 1 Samuel. Samuel anoints Saul king, and then Nahash the Ammonite threatens Jabesh Gilead. Saul rallies Israel and defeats Nahash. God, through Samuel, destroys Israel's wheat harvest in response to their demand for a king. Isn't that interesting? He says, all right, I need to remind you that this is not a good thing to do. And so for this punishment, parents do that sometimes too, delayed uh, punishment. You just wait till we get home, kind of a thing. Uh, so that's that's taking place. And then Jonathan destroys the Philistine garrison at Geba and starts a war. And Saul caves in, waiting for Samuel to show up, and he presumes to offer sacrifices. I hope I'm not going too fast. Jonathan destroys the Philistine garrison at Geba and starts a war. Wait a minute, is that? Well, how did I... Oh, I know what I did. That was too much, and so I, I was going to copy that and paste it to the other thing, and then I forgot to come back and erase that. So we're just looking at those things twice, which is interesting, though, because there's two accounts of Jonathan going up against the uh, the Philistine garrison at Geba. Samuel tells Saul that his kingdom will not endure because he has not waited for Samuel's instruction. He was not a man of faith. It's interesting, though, that his son is a man of faith, and we'll read about that this morning, good Lord willing. Anybody got anything on any of this that we've covered so far? I know that was really fast, wasn't it? That was a fast review. Oh, well. Let's do some reading. Get back into uh, chapter 13. We started there. Let's go back, and I need somebody to finish up uh, chapter 13 in from 15 to 18. Who would like to read that? Looking for big words, big names. 
All right, Larry's got that. And then chapter 13, 19 to 23. Who's there? Got a reader for that section? I see a hand in the back. I don't care who it is. I jump. All right, you've got it. That's Shannon, isn't it? All right, I, I didn't see the beard part. I just saw the... In the 14, chapter 14, we're going to skip the first few verses of chapter 14 for time's sake and go to chapter 6 or chapter 14, verses 6 through 11. All right, Mauricio's got that. And then 14, 12 to 15, shorter reading. Do them all. Amy, Amy grabs that shorter reading. And then 14, 16 to 23, that'll finish us up for the moment. All right, Janie, we're good. Let's do some reading in 1 Samuel. Then Samuel rose and went up from Gilgal to whatever. Gideon. Okay, a Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. Now Saul and his son Jonathan and the people who were present with them were staying in Jeba of Benjamin while the Philistines camped at Michmash. And the raiders came from the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah to the land of Shil, and another company turned toward Bethlehem, and another company turned toward the border which overlooks the valley of Zebron toward the wilderness. Not a blacksmith would be found in the whole land of Israel because the Philistines had said, Otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines to have their plowshares, mattocks, axes, and sickles sharpened. The price was two-thirds of a shekel for sharpening plowshares and mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening forks and axes and for repointing goads. So on the day of the battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear in his hand, only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. Now a detachment of Philistines had gone out to the pass at Michmash. Chapter 14, 6 to 11 is where we are. We're not going to read the first five verses. Come, let's go over the outpost of those who circumcise the man. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. To all of you have in mind, his armor bearer said, Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. Jonathan said, Come on, then. We will cross over toward them and let them seek us. If they seek if they say to us, wait there, we will come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistine, the Hebrews are crawling out of their hole. They were hiding then the men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you something. Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees with his armor-bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan. And as he came after him, his armor-bearer killed them. That first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made was about twenty men 
within about half an acre of land. And there was trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and the raiders also trembled, and the earthquake, so that it was a very great trembling. And the watchman of Saul and Gideon up into the brook, and the whole multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who was gone from us. And when they had counted, the whole Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here, for the ark of, ark of God went at that time to the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priests, two months of the camp of the Philistines and priests and went forth. So Saul said to the people, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into battle. And behold, every Philistine's hand was against his fellow, and it was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who were with the Philistines and who had gone up with them into the camp, even though even they also turned to be the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had given themselves in the inner country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond that table. Very good. Thank you all for reading. Why were there no blacksmiths or workers in iron in Israel? What's that? Well, okay, you first. They couldn't go to war. That okay. Okay, but who's who stopped them? The Philistines. But I thought this was an Israelite country. One of the things the, the Holy Spirit does, I believe, is make the assumption that we've read the previous stuff. So we would know that prior to this time in Israel's history, the Philistines had ruled them for 40 years. Back in the period of Judges, God gave, gave them over to the Philistines for a period of 40 years. And it was likely during that period of 40 years that the Philistines said, all right, no more metalworking. That's against the law. You can't do that. You want that stuff, you've got to come to us. And so... Here's a nation that is given a king that has no means to make the weapons of war to defend itself. A point I'd want to make here is that we look out in the world and we see the people of the world doing the things of the world. And it often looks to us like those are the guys, they've got it made. They're, they're doing what makes life in this world easy, and that's probably true and to, a, to a certain extent, to a certain extent. But what did Israel have that the Philistines did not have? God. God was their God. The true and living God was their God. Not Dagon, not some false idol, not, some, uh, not anything else but the true and living God. And even though the Israelites did some goofy things from time to time, God was still their God, and he was faithful to them. And so it's almost like God is showing us that Israel, they are the underdogs in the ways of the world. But it doesn't matter. He will eventually bring them to victory through their faith. Paul? I know, not to get political, even though it's a political side note, is you see a very basic concept that was understood even by these people a 
long time ago, that is, an unarmed citizenry is one that can be controlled, is one that, you know, etc. So I'm not going to go into that. I think everybody knows what I'm talking about as far as that commandment. But even back then, they understood that concept. So that's why. And it's... It goes back to the to the thing of good and evil. There are evil people, and the good people have to have a means of defending themselves against the evil people. And by the way, the Second Amendment, just just to go back to this uh, moral picture, why is it a, an amendment? Why wasn't it included in the Constitution initially? And here's the reason: when the Constitution was written up. The United States of America did not have a standing army. It was not until later that we had a military that the government controlled. And so the guys in power said, all right, this is the issue we had in Europe. The government had the military, and so we need to empower the people to defend themselves. And this goes right back to what's happening in ancient Israel. The, the enemies of Israel said, we don't want you to be able to defend yourself. And if that were the case, if that remained the case, then evil would have prevailed. And it's the same today. All right. So that's what's going on there. But, but what had happened previously that should have given the Israelites at least some weapons? Remember in our sort of review, the, the timeline, Nahash the Ammonite? was defeated by the Israelites, actually by God, but they could have acquired some weapons at that point. The thing is, they just didn't have what the Philistines had. That's the point. They were the underdog militarily, and their weaponry wouldn't have compared. They had some weapons. They would have had slings. Bows and arrows, clubs, those kinds of things, but the, the primary weapon they had was God. Yes? In the reading, it says the Philistines turned on each other and were killing each other. So as the Egyptians, I mean, as, as the Israelites came into the battlefield, there were weapons lying all about the floor of the arena. Right, that's what happened to this battle. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking Larry's talking about Ahash the uh, I don't know, might not be, but. No, I was talking about just now. Oh, okay. Well, then yes. Well, Bob said. <laughs> but, but still, it, it, it still comes back to a, a God-fearing people has his defense. Those without God do not have his defense. And for decades, one of my fears has been that the American people would look at our powerful military and say, oh, check our military out. Nobody can take us, and that's when you start to go down. What we should all be doing is saying, look at the God of heaven and earth. We serve him, we honor him, and he's the one who protects us. In God we trust. Our money doesn't have. In our military we trust. Thank God for our military. I think they're a blessing from him, but he can save without a military if he wants to. And he can give us defeat with the most powerful military. If he wants to. It all comes back to our faith in God. All right. I skipped the first part of uh, chapter 14 because, uh, it, not because it's not important. 
One of the things the first part mentioned is that Abijah is there with the ephod, and that will come to play later, but when we can pick that up in the account as it goes on. One of the, one of the issues I had in studying this section was in determining, did Jonathan go up against the Philistines once, or did he go up against the Philistines twice? Because it, it almost sounds in the second account like it's just a retelling of the first, coming back to recap what had happened previously. But I believe Jonathan went up twice. And I think there's pretty good, pretty good evidence for that in the text when you read the details about where everybody was. And so I'll just state that from the beginning. I should have made a PowerPoint over this, but it's a lot of stuff to put on a PowerPoint. Uh, Jonathan strikes Geba in chapter 13. And then Saul blows the trumpet to gather Israel. That's what happens at that point. And Saul waits at Gilgal for Samuel. That's chapter 13, and that's striking. In chapter 14, Saul and his 600 guys are already at Gibeah, and they are under the pomegranate tree. And that's where Ahijah is mentioned with the ephod. Nothing mentioned of Samuel in chapter 14. They're waiting for Samuel in chapter 13, but there's nothing about Samuel at all in chapter 14. And in chapter 14, nobody knew Jonathan was gone. And one of the things that the Philistines say in chapter 14 when Jonathan comes up against them is, look, the Israelites have come out of their hidey holes. Well, why did they go into the hidey holes? Well, that's from chapter 13 where they went into their hidey holes because Jonathan had started the fight by attacking the garrison at uh, Geba. And so it, it looks like there's two different situations here where Jonathan goes up against the, uh, the Philistines. In chapter 13, one of the first things we're told is that Jonathan had a 1,000 guys. And so the assumption in my mind would be that when Jonathan goes up against the Philistine garrison, in chapter 13, he's using those 1,000 men. Why else would those 1,000 men be mentioned? In chapter 14, it's just him and his armor bearer. Those are the only ones mentioned, and they go up against the Philistines in chapter 14. Right. to fight a battle with yeah that's the end of chapter 13 yeah so I'm looking at two different goings up of Jonathan so here's his dad who's struggling to try and be the king by the way how old was Saul when he took the throne he was 40 40 years old so he's got a son Named Jonathan, of course, who is exercising great faith and we're even given an insight into what he tells his armor bearer there in chapter 14. Uh, look at verse, verses 8 and 9, chapter 14. Jonathan says, Behold, we'll cross over to the men and reveal ourselves to them. And if they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand in our place and not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hands, and 
This shall be the sign to us. Where did Jonathan get that sign? Did he just think that's the way it'll work? Was it his faith compelling him to do this? There's, there's no insight. But who else was asking for such a sign back in the period of Judges? Gideon. What did Gideon want? Lord, you're calling me to go to a battle. Gideon, Gideon wasn't initiating that. God called Gideon. He was hiding as well at that point. But he says, if you want me to go, here's a fleece. Make the ground around the fleece wet, but keep the fleece dry. And then the next night, because the first night wasn't enough, keeping the fleece dry while the ground was wet, Gideon asked, well, make the fleece wet this time and the ground dry. And he wrung a bunch of water out of it the next morning. So he had asked for that sign and knew by that sign, okay, this is what God wants us to do. One of the things I like about that is that I think of these guys as heroes of the faith. Uh, Gideon is even mentioned in chapter 11 of Hebrews as a hero of the faith. And yet he had some uncertain times. He wanted to make sure, he wanted to know. Also for me, I think this is a lesson. Because based on the word of God, we can take a look at what God has revealed and know some things. You don't have to have a fleece if the word of God tells you what to do or steers you away from things you shouldn't do. And what God leads us into is where we should go. And those are the signs, I would say, that we have today. What does the word of God say about it? What, what does Jesus say? What do the apostles teach? What does scripture lead us into? And that's what we look at today. Yes. I wonder with Jonathan being so close to David, a lot of David's stuff didn't run off, didn't rub off on Jonathan because it seems like the older saw get the more skewed cat he did. And Jonathan used to say, hey, you know, I've got to make you know because he's trusting in the Lord. And you know, David was such a good person. I think a lot of the stuff between him and Jonathan, since they were so close, maybe walked off. Of course, we don't have to live in more scriptures like you're talking about. But, you know, sometimes I wonder about that. Well, when they begin their relationship, that's David and Jonathan. I, I think this is the kind of thing that's going to happen. They're going to play off of each other. Like, uh, what does Proverbs say about two friends? As iron sharpens iron, so one friend sharpens the countenance of his fellow. And that was David and Jonathan. They had a great relationship. But, but what is it that makes great relationships between people? What's that? Trust is one of the things that makes great relationships. You can't have a great relationship unless you trust somebody. What's that? Time. It, it takes time to develop a relationship. However... Have you ever met somebody and, and just in the first five minutes, you know, we're going to be good friends. And I, I can't explain all of that. I won't ask if you've ever met somebody and knew, I ain't going to like this guy ever. <laughs> to me, a lot of that is simply shared values. What do we value together? And. Sometimes culture has a lot to do with what we value, but most of the time uh, it's a very personal thing, what we value. 
and when we see that we have similar values, we care about the same things, the, the same uh, aspect of spirituality is something we share. And have you ever been, you meet somebody and you don't know who they are, but you really like him and you think, you know, he acts like he's a member of the church. And then you find, oh yeah, he is a member of the church. It's, I think that's a, a fascinating thing. And I, I don't know how strange that ought to be to us since the Spirit of God lives in every one of his children, but that's one of the things we find. So here's Saul. Samuel says, you're not going to keep the kingdom. It's going to be taken from you because you don't have the faith that your son has. Well, he didn't say you don't have the faith that your son has. He said you don't, you don't have the same faith. You're not a man after God's own heart. God is looking for a man after his own heart. It's interesting, it wasn't, it wasn't Jonathan. God wasn't looking for Jonathan, but Jonathan does seem to be a man after God's own heart. And that's why I think the relationship between him and David will eventually flourish. So, back to this battle with the Philistines. Verse 12, the men of the garrison, this is chapter 14, verse 12, the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer said, come up to us and we'll tell you something. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me for the Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. That's his conclusion. That's what he believed. And it's borne out that that was exactly the way it was uh, in, the, in the mind of God. Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet, so it must have been pretty steep. The armor bearer was behind him. They fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer put some of them to death after him. And this was about 20 guys within about a half an acre of ground. So in verse 15, it says what? There is a trembling in the camp, but whose camp? Now it's the camp of the Philistines. Where had the trembling taken place in chapter 13? That was in Israel. And that's why they hid themselves in holes and in caves. And that's why when Jonathan ascends in chapter 14 to the garrison of the Philistines, they say, oh, have you come out of your hidey holes? So there's a trembling. Verse 16 is where Saul has watchmen, and they're looking, watching the Philistines. And he says, the multitude has melted away. When we were over there in September, our guide took us north to Dan, and he stopped the bus at a certain point. And there had been, uh, we're, we're driving up through these narrow paved roads, and there's barbed wire on both sides uh, with signs on them and just rough scrub on either side, nothing being developed, no houses, no, no agriculture, nothing, just rough scrub country. And I'm looking at these signs, and the signs say mines. And they're not talking about gold or iron ore. They're talking about landmines. And he gets up to a certain point and stops. And it's obvious that this is a place for tourists to come. There's a little enclave with a pavilion, and you can get out of the sun and stand in the cool shade. And, and you can look over to the east, and he says, you see that hill over there with those white things on top? And there were some white. It couldn't tell if they were buildings or what they were, just something that appeared white, and we could see where he was talking about. And he said... Those are the Syrian missile sites right there. And it was not a couple miles away. 
And then he pointed us in the other direction, to the west. And he said, you look on that hill over there and you see those things up there? Those are our guys. They are watching the Syrians all the time. So it's, it's still a place of war and of conflict yet today, which in my mind is continuing evidence that the whole world knows that God brought the Jews into existence and the world is trying to wipe them out. Yes, Paul. You know that you know, we accept God, you know, intervening and doing things in physical ways, miraculous ways to change the outcome of battles in the Bible. We accept that very easily. But I can remember watching military archive films and about World War II and a lot of other wars where they're reporting somehow the weather turned, somehow this happened. And if it had gone the other way, the Nazis would have taken over the rest of Europe. But because of this one thing that was so coincidental, it didn't happen. And to me, that was always like, oh, okay, I, I see you, Lord. I, I see you still, you're still working. You know what I'm saying? So I just thought that was interesting. Right. It's it, it, it works everywhere, even in, in wartime. And he doesn't necessarily sign it, but we look at it and we say, what, what else could that be? When historically, and you do some reading about history, there were some awfully incompetent decisions made by some very competent people. And there were some very dumb decisions made um, that should have led to disaster that turned out in, in our favor. God will bless who he wants to bless. And that's what we see throughout the scriptures. And it's not always because those who are being blessed are deserving. It's just because they're the ones he wants to come out on top. All right. Where are we here? Um, verse 16, that's where we were. The watchmen in Gibeah look and they say the multitude's melting away. They went here, they went there. Saul said to the people who were with him, number now and see who's gone from us. And when they had numbered, what they find out? Jonathan, where's Jonathan? He's the one that's gone. Do a head count, quick. We, we see that our enemies melting away. Is, has some of our people gone over there to fight? Well, yeah, Jonathan's gone over there. Whoa, what's going on here? So, so Saul said to Ahijah, who's Ahijah? He's the priest. He's got the ephod. He says, bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God was at that time with the sons of Israel. And among scholars, there's some controversy over whether or not this was the ark or whether it was actually the ephod. And I don't know that there's any way to prove one thing or the other. And maybe he did bring the ark there because it would have been safer among a, a military camp than it would have been. I mean, he might have been afraid that the Philistines would sneak back and take it like they had before. Anyway, whatever. He's, he's wanting to confer with the high priest about what's going on. And that's why he is calling for him, whether it's the ark or the ephod. The ephod would have had... The connection with the Urim and the Thummim. Do you remember on the high priest's garments? And uh, Mike will probably get to this eventually in Leviticus on Wednesday nights. So I'm looking forward to that. But he'll talk about the high priest's garments and the stones that were on those garments. And the Urim and the Thummim are stones that we know very little about. But they apparently use them to to divine answers to questions, whatever that would have been about. 
And so Saul is asking for some means, whether it's the ark or the ephod in verse 18, to find out what's going on. While Saul talked to the priest, the commotion in the camp of the Philistines continued and increased. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. In other words, I I don't need you anymore to seek out information. I see what's going on and I'm going to respond. And so Saul takes the battle to the Philistines. That's what happens in in verse 20. The people rallied, they came to the battle, and every man's sword was against his fellow. This is what Bob was talking about earlier. Now, there is a confusion in the camp of the Philistines, and God has done this before. And the Philistines are killing one another. And so we would surmise, as Bob had previously, that when the Israelites show up on the scene, well, there's plenty of weapons laying around, and their enemies, a bunch of them, uh, are already dead. And so there is a great victory that was wrought by God's hand that day. So, verse 22, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines had fled, even they also pursued them closely in the battle. So the Lord delivered Israel that day, and the battle spread beyond Beth Haven. So, great victory. Who started it? One, one man of faith says, Let's go up and get those Philistines. (laughs) And that's how it all got started. And where's the king? The king is back in camp. Um, It's just interesting how this all comes about. Anybody got any uh, observations or comments? Any questions? Bud? The epods answered a question, yes or no. And that's why, uh, in other words, if they ask God a question, uh, the epods were two two stones, and they would shake them up and put them in a basket or whatever. And whatever one fell out, that was the answer. That was a, a, an act of God. And so that that's what the deal was about. The, uh, they wanted the, the high priest to come up there and bring the epods so they could get an answer from God, which is yes or no. But, it was, do we attack? Do we sit still? Right. So they wanted to, wanted to know what God thought about it before, before they went into battle. Well, that's, that's what it looks like. But who did Saul not consult at this point? Well, he had not consulted God. <laughs> okay. And he wanted God, unless we would give this as an, opera, as a, as an example of him trying to seek God. Who else had he not consulted? Apparently, he wasn't going back to Samuel. Samuel gave him some bad news. And maybe he didn't want to hear from Samuel anymore. Samuel was in Gilgal, I believe, at this point. And that was about 15 miles from Gibeah. So it wasn't that far. It, I mean, it's a, it's a decent distance. But he could have been called for like he had called for uh, the priest. At any rate... We got Samuel talking to Saul in chapter 13, and in chapter 14, Saul is rather conferring with the priest. And I don't mean to make too much of that, because it doesn't say. It, it doesn't point out, here's why Saul was consulting with Ahijah, because he was afraid of Samuel, or he didn't like Samuel. It just says, this is what he did, and God leaves it up to us to decide what that means. And so... The history's in front of us, and we have to do something with us.
And I don't know about you, but I believe with everything in me that God gives us this information. He tells us this history, not just to give us details of what went on, but all of this is for shaping our faith and forming our faith. When you go to Romans chapter 14, there's a statement made here about the things we're reading and others. Wait a minute. It's not 14. It's 15. Paul writes to the church at Rome, chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those who are without strength and not just please ourselves. Each one of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And then Paul makes this conclusion about that. For whatever was written in earlier times, because he had just quoted a text about Jesus from the Old Covenant, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. I Really? I don't believe that he was saying or the Holy Spirit was saying through him, there's bits and pieces in there that will help your faith. I think every bit of it will help our faith, and that's what it's in there for. You read these things, you understand these things, there's something there that will build your faith. It will make you stronger. It's it's the parallel. I, I know I've come back to this before, but I have no idea what the food that I eat does for my body, but I'm still here, so it must be nourishing my body in some way. The, the cells of your body need to be replaced and replenished, and that's what's happening when you eat. The food goes into your, your physical machine that God made, and it's got everything it needs to take what you consume and turn it in to the new you. And, and that's what happens physically. You stop eating physically, your body will begin to waste away. Not as fast as we want it to when we go on a diet or we, we stop eating bad stuff for a little while, but that's, that's what happens. It's the same thing spiritually. Steve? In the Old Testament, Israel is God's people. Today, we're God's people. All the history that you see in the Old Testament shows God's love for Israel. And he doesn't abandon it, even though he puts them in. He continues to try, try to bring them back to him as his own people. So that should show us that he will never give up on us. Right, exactly. And I, I think about Ezekiel. I think we talked about him a couple of weeks back. I don't remember if it was a class or a sermon, but God puts Ezekiel among the exiles in Babylon. And he tells him, 
These are hard-headed people. And I want to ask, what? what? They're still hard-headed? They've been sent to Babylon. You know what a long and difficult trip that would be as a slave, as a captive? And you've, you've been taken out of your country because you've been wicked and evil. And you've been put in a foreign country as a captive, as punishment. And God sends a prophet, Ezekiel, to them. And he says, I'm going to make your, your head hard as flint because they're a hard-headed people. Uh, you're going to have to be able to stand up to them. And it's like they're still hard-headed. And God is still faithful. He's still working with them. He's still bringing them along because he knows that the children of these people are eventually going to go back. It's, it's been his plan all along to bring Christ into the world through the Jews, and that's exactly what he's done. And now you, you read Romans, the, the ninth, 10th, and 11th chapters, and you get this picture that Paul puts in Romans for us that the new Israel is the church. It was wonderful to go to what we call the Holy Land. But this is the Holy Land. We are the new Israel. We are God's elect. I don't say that with arrogance or pride because it's, it's an assembly open to anyone who by faith in Jesus Christ would come into it. And God wants everyone to come into it. But even when he told Moses, I'm going to do away with them and bring a people through you. And Moses talked him out of it. Yeah. But there was still been through that seed, there would still be an Israel, even through Moses. So he was never going to give up on. So keep that in mind the next time you do or say something really dumb and you think, how can God put up with me? How can he tolerate me? And, yeah, well, he does. Well, again, observation, maybe I'm just highlighting the obvious, but one thing as you study the Word, you also see that God has a certain style. He has a way of doing things. And he's not usually using the largest numbers, the, the people with the most money, the whatever. You see them. You see him use David against Goliath. You see him use Jonathan. You know what I'm saying? You see him just use a little bit, and he can change everything with just a little bit. And so, and this is kind of a self-serving comment as far as complimenting our church. But if you look at the Choctaw Church of Christ on paper, statistically compared to some of the mega churches that go to Edmonds, you have these big budgets, big churches, and yet it's our church that has been supporting and working with Bible Talk that reaches millions of people. Our Choctaw Church of Christ has a scope that is, it's not even comparable to what somebody would look at this mega church and say, wow, look what they're doing, that church is amazing. And, and on paper you just see Choctaw, you know, a couple hundred people in Choctaw. But yeah, the scope of what we're doing, what God's doing with these few hundred people in Choctaw, you, you can't even compare. I mean, we're talking about millions of people. So, still God's style. It doesn't change the way he does it. Right. And, and nobody here seems to be saying, oh, that's enough. Anytime we say, oh, this has arisen, we have a need for funds, boom, we got it. Uh, <clears throat> we, we never have a problem with that. It's like there's, this is a place of faith. And that's what we learn we ought to be through the scriptures. Well, we've come to the end of our time this morning. May God bless you for being here. I hope this class has been beneficial to you.